Well, again, to review a little of what we have already covered so far in our series, it's important to emphasize a a few of these critical pillar truths about the character of God. We have studied already that God reveals Himself as a God of incomprehensibility, not to Himself, but to His creation. We studied already that the incomprehensibility of God is that quality of God that makes Him incapable of being fully understood or defined by anyone other than God Himself. Even in our best thinking, God is greater. Even in those moments of our most clearest thoughts, God is infinitely beyond what our minds can possibly comprehend. He is truly incomprehensible. But if that's all that God was, as we discussed last time we met together, that would leave us without any hope. But God is not just a God of incomprehensibility. Through acts of revelation, God has disclosed particular knowledge of Himself. In other words, we can speak of God's knowability, God's unhindered ability to make specific knowledge about Himself knowable to His creatures. And He has done that in His Word. He has done that also through creation, but in His Word we find this most definitive description, this most definitive revelation about the character of God. He is knowable because He has made Himself knowable to His creatures. But when we talk about these qualities, both His incomprehensibility as well as His knowability, it automatically raises important questions about the language that He uses to describe Himself. How definite can that language be considering the fact that God is so incomprehensible. And so before we get into our study this evening, I do need to take a a few moments to talk about an important issue that relates to our entire study of the the character of God. And, And we need to identify and explain a very important concept, and that is the concept of biblical language, particularly biblical language about God. The language that we find in the Scriptures, the terms, the titles, the names, the word pictures that we find, the descriptions of God. How do we approach that language? It's a very, very important question, and there are proper and and, and incorrect ways to understand the language we find in Scripture concerning who God is. For example, consider this. If you deny the incomprehensibility of God, either by word or in practice, if you deny the incomprehensibility of God, you are left with univocal language, it's called. Univocal language. What is univocal language? It means that you approach the Bible and the language about God in the Bible as if that language is exactly 
what God is or who God is as God knows himself. In other words, you essentially take that equal sign and you place that equal sign between the biblical descriptions and titles and names of God and who God is. You essentially say God can be contained then perfectly in human language, univocal language. And of course, that is a great error. It leads to all kinds of false doctrine. On the other hand, if you deny the knowability of God, either by word or in practice, you are left with what's called equivocal language. Now, what's equivocal language? Equivocal language says this, that there's no human language that can adequately, possibly, truly describe God, either in its terms, its titles, its names, its descriptions. And so, therefore, the Bible's language about God is is completely different than who God is. The Bible, therefore, is is obscure. It's ambiguous uh, about God, and therefore we cannot draw from the Bible any true knowledge of who God is. That's what happens when you deny the knowability of God and you affirm what's called equivocal language. That, too, is an obvious heresy. And that leaves us with a third option which is very important for us, the correct option. It's important for us to understand this option. And it is the way of looking at biblical language that both affirms God's incomprehensibility and His knowability. When we affirm those two realities of who God is, we affirm what is called analogical language. That the names and the titles and the descriptions that we find in Scripture are analogies. They're analogical. In other words, they're not completely equal with who God is in Himself. At the same time, they're not completely different, those descriptions that we find in Scripture. There is an an analogy there. There is a sameness that's there, that the Bible's language can and does faithfully reflect God's knowledge of Himself. It can be called true or adequate language to describe who God is. And that's the reality. We must understand this as we move forward in our study of the attributes of God and as we look to all the testimony that we find in Scripture to the various attributes of God, what we find is that all of that language is going to be what we call analogical language or or accommodated language. Remember that picture that Calvin leaves us. He says that God is like a father who who puts his child on his knee, and he speaks to his child in childish language. That's not because God speaks to us in meaningless ways, but it's rather that God accommodates in, in this divine considerateness. He comes down to our level, and he chooses words. 
He chooses titles. He chooses names for himself. He chooses descriptions that will help us understand who he is. But we must remember as we move forward with this analogical language that just because God does this and calls himself, for example, Father, that we don't make God out to be just like us because he uses those same terms. We have to be very, very careful about that. That, that we don't, because of the fact that God has accommodated to us, that, that we, 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 we fall into that kind of univocal language and begin to think that as God has described himself, that is exactly who he is, when in reality what God has done is lowered himself to our level to describe who he is. At the same time, we have to be careful knowing that the Bible's description descriptions of God, knowing that, we have to be careful to try to outsmart God. And this can also be a, a very significant problem today that we look at the biblical text and we say, well, that's analogical language. That's language of analogy, likeness. But if it were up to me, I would use these terms. These are better names for God. These are better descriptions for who God is to describe the life of God. These are better. And, and that can happen among especially those who are really given to theology that we try to improve the Bible. We try to protect God from the way in which he has revealed himself thinking that it is our job to change the language to improve it when that's not at all what God has left for us to do. In his perfect wisdom, he has chosen these titles, these terms, these words, these descriptions as the very best, most wise way of revealing to us who he really is. And that's why... Martin Luther said this, if we want to walk in safety, in other words, not veering into univocal language or not veering into equivocal language, if we want to walk in safety, let us accept what the Word submits for our own, for our reflection and what God Himself wants us to know. Let us pass by other things, things not revealed in the Word. Now that said, let's come to this quality, this perfection of God that we call His aseity. God's aseity. Indeed, as has already been said this evening, that is a word that you probably have not said any time until you came to the meeting this evening. But it is not a term that is that difficult to define, although it does certainly relate to to the incomprehensibility of God as we're going to see. Let's define that term, the aseity of God. What does that term mean? What does aseity mean? Let's define it this way. The aseity of God describes God's absolute independence from everything else that exists. 
and the perfect sufficiency he enjoys in himself for the fullness of his own existence. Let me say that again, walking through this definition phrase by phrase. The aseity of God describes God's absolute independence. Not qualified independence, but absolute independence from everything else, everything else, without exception, that exists. It also describes the perfect sufficiency that God enjoys in himself for the fullness of his own existence. In other words, what the aseity of God communicates is this, as we're going to see it in the scriptures, that God has life in himself. He is not reliant on anything outside of himself to make him alive to make him majestic and glorious. Everything that makes God God is in himself. He is self-sufficient. He is independent. He has life contained in himself. He is not affected by the outside or dependent on anything outside of himself. Now when we come back to that term, Aseity, you're going to see why we use that term to define God's independence or his self-sufficiency. The term is made up of two Latin words. The, the words are a from, meaning the word from, and the word se, meaning self. A and se. So put those together, a and se, you have aseity, but it means from oneself. And that term came to be used as a a good way of describing the biblical witness because when we see the Scripture's testimony of God, we see that He exists from Himself. And He is the only thing in existence that exists from Himself. In other words... God's very essence is not dependent upon anything outside of himself, but everything that God needs to be God is contained within himself, from everlasting to everlasting. Without change, without variation, never ebbing and flowing, he's not contingent upon something else, he is not derived from something else. He is self-sufficient. Now we can take this and define it in a, a few more particular ways. First of all, when we say that God exists from himself, we say this, that God is the only independent being. Everything else in creation is dependent upon him for existence, but he alone is independent. He depends on no one and nothing. He derives nothing for his majesty, for his glory, from anything outside of himself. Secondly, we can say that the aseity of God describes for us the fact that God is the only being without need. 
He is the only being without need. Everything else in creation is in need. It, 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 first of all, is in the need of a creator to, to come into existence. But then everything else in creation is in need of sustenance, of being sustained. But God has no need. He is perfectly self-sufficient, supplying everything that he needs from within himself. We also say this when we describe the aseity of God. We, we also are describing his complete freedom, his absolute freedom. God is the only free being. He is the only free being. And what does that mean? It means everything else in creation is by virtue of its dependency in some way affected by other things. Everything else. We certainly know that about ourselves, but everything in this universe is in some way affected by something else. God is never affected in that way. He is free, and He is the only being that enjoys true, pure freedom. He is, he's, he's never needing to learn. He is never changed by external forces. He's never in need. He is free, completely free. And thus we can say that God's being is fundamentally different from our being. In fact, theologians will say that even though we call ourselves human beings, we're really human becomings because we're always changing. But God is the only one who says In the absolute sense, I am. No becoming, no change. He is the I am. A.W. Tozer, in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, has a, a a great section on this, pointing to the fact that this particular perfection of God is certainly not very popular in the church today. He writes this, quote, Almighty God, just because He is Almighty, needs no support. The picture of a nervous, ingratiating God fawning over men to win their favor is not a pleasant one. Yet if we look at the popular conception of God, that is precisely what we see. 20th century Christianity has put God on charity. So lofty is our opinion of ourselves that we find it quite easy, not to say enjoyable, to believe that we are necessary to God. But the truth is that God is not greater for our being, nor would He be less if we did not exist. That we do exist is altogether of God's free determination, not by our desert, nor by divine necessity. Now, having said that about God in terms of what aseity means, let's, let's clarify that for just a moment and, and also note what aseity does not mean because there can be and there have been throughout history some, some grave misunderstandings about aseity. First of all, aseity does not mean that God is not personal. 
that he is incapable of relationship with anything outside of himself. And we know from the scriptures that God is the one who who creates man and enters into covenant with man. He He is the one who reveals his personal name to man. He is the Holy One of Israel. He he is the one who describes himself as Father. He is certainly personal. Secondly, the aseity of God does not mean that God does not exercise direct control over the universe. Just because God is so transcendent does not mean that he is not imminent. He is involved in his creation. In fact, we find that he not only has created the world, but as Hebrews chapter 1 states, he holds it together by the word of his power. He is holding every atom in this room together, keeping it from utter chaos and and, 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 and uh, disexistence by the word of his power. He is personally and directly involved in his creation. Thirdly, that God is a say or God is self-sufficient does not mean that God is indifferent to the needs of his creation. Not at all. He is not indifferent we, we read, for example, in Exodus 34, that great declaration that God makes as he preaches himself, that he, Yahweh, is compassionate, that he is gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, and who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. We're going to see later that it is because God is self-sufficient, the source of all life, that he calls upon us to cast our anxieties upon him because what? He cares. He cares. Also, that God is self-sufficient does not preclude the incarnation. And here is one of the great if not the great mystery that we read of in Scripture. How God became man, and that becoming was not any change to his essence at all. He didn't become a better God because of the incarnation. He didn't change in his essence, in his majesty, in his omniscience. But God the Son took on human nature. He took on human flesh. No, the aseity of God does not preclude the the incarnation, but we must remember in light of all of these things that although God does interact with his creation, he cares for it. He feeds the cattle. He's concerned about the sparrow that falls to the ground, that although he is so personal that in no way is he changed to the better or to the worse through his interaction with his creation? Now, that's the definition of aseity. Where do we find this in Scripture? Let's now look to the biblical testimony to this reality. 
as we've seen with the other attributes and as we'll see throughout Scripture, abundantly testifies to these realities. We see it in the very first words of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in that statement, we see that that God is simply assumed as existing, but it is He Himself who creates time and matter. He creates space. He does so, moreover, as Hebrews chapter 11 verse 3 says, He does so out of nothing. There is not some kind of eternal matter that he, he comes up to and then reshapes that matter into the universe. No, what testifies to the aseity of God is that out of nothing, he calls into being matter. He creates time and space. And he does so simply by the power of His Word. We say by divine fiat. He brings it all into existence. Then when He comes to the pinnacle of His creation, when He comes to creating man in His own image, what we find is that God personally, using different action here now than than what is used to describe the 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 previous stages of God's creation, he forms man from the dust of the ground, speaking of that personal act, and he breathes into man life. God is the one who is the source of all life. In the book of Exodus, we know that very that very well-known text, Exodus chapter 3, where Moses sees the burning bush. And as a picture of the aseity of God, Moses observes something he has never seen before. The bush burns, but is never consumed. And then, once Moses interacts and God speaks to Moses and Moses worships there, Moses asks for this God's name. And there in that very powerful moment, we read these words. God said to Moses, I am who I am. I am who I am, a statement testifying to the unchanging nature of God, His utter independence, His complete self-containment. He has everything that He needs to be majestic in His glory. He needs nothing outside of Himself. And so He says, I am who I am. Psalm 115 verse 3, here we see the utter independence and freedom of God. The psalmist says, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. He does whatever He pleases. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 13 to 14. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as His counselor has informed Him? With whom did He consult, and who gave Him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice and taught him 
knowledge, and informed him of the way of understanding? These are all rhetorical questions, and the answer to all of them is absolutely no one. No one. We read a little bit later on in that chapter, in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 18 to 20, as, 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 as the comparison continues, as, as you find this, this comparison between the, the self-sufficient God of the universe the God of Israel, compared with the gods of the nations. And, and, and God puts himself in the dock and says, compare me with all the other gods of the nations. And, and you see this, this trial language unfold, particularly in chapters 40 to 48, as, as God talks there much about likeness. With whom will you compare me? And here you have one of those ironic statements that God makes when he says this in verses 18 to 20. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare it with him as for the idol? And here's the idiocy of, of this idea of idolatry, of worshiping other gods. As for the idol, a craftsman crafts it. A goldsmith plates it with gold and a silversmith fashions chains of silver, he who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. How ludicrous. Then a little bit later in that same chapter, Isaiah 40, verses 28 to 31, we read this, Do you not know? Have you not heard the everlasting God, Yahweh, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired? His understanding is inscrutable. He is the one who gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, And vigorous young men stumble badly. Yet those who wait for Yahweh will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not be weary. Yahweh says to to the people of Israel, Come to me, I am the one with endless source. And when you rest and wait in me, I will share of the abundance of my life. We come to the New Testament, John chapter 1, verses 3 to 4, in that precious prologue to the Gospel of John, we read this, all things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. A little bit later on in John 5, verse 26, Jesus says this, For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. Moving forward to the book of Acts, as Paul is is addressing the elite uh, court in Athens, that great place of higher learning, as he meets there on that that mountain called Mars Hill, Paul addresses these philosophers, the wise men of the world, and, and in, he's doing so as he's in the shadow of the great Parthenon with all the temples up on that mountain. 
undoubtedly even pointing to those things. And Paul admonishes, he admonishes the, the, the Athenians when he says this. He, he gets at the heart of all their foolish religion, their foolish philosophy, when he says this, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives life to all people and breath and all things. The same truth is communicated in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 as Paul deals there too with the problem of idolatry which was so rampant in the city of Corinth. Paul says this, we know there is no such thing as an idol in the world. They don't exist. And there is no God but one. For even if, Paul says, there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom all or uh, by whom are all things and we exist through him and then of course at the end of the scriptures in the book of revelation numerous testimonies there to the aseity of god but take this one the chorus of heaven that is that is recorded for us in Re- Re- revelation chapter 4 verse 11 worthy are you our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. Indeed, God is independent, has life in himself, is reliant upon no one, is derived from nothing else, is eternally from everlasting to everlasting, all glorious all majestic in and of himself, and needs nothing. Nothing can make him better. Nothing will ever make him worse. He is who he is. He always will be perfectly sufficient. Now, just as a way of excursus, then, it raises the question, doesn't it? Then why did God will for creation to exist? Why why does God create and certainly, this is a, a fundamental question of uh, why. Why is there the world? If God is so sufficient in Himself, and we could talk much, we won't today, we could talk about the blessedness of, of the triune Godhead and the fellowship that is enjoyed there from eternity past to eternity future. Why would God ever create something? If He has no need, why create? And and essentially, we can, we can respond to that question with three answers, two of which are heresy. First, God created out of necessity. There are some who believe that God had to create, that He needed something. He needed people to love Him. He needed people to, to worship Him. He needed people to serve Him. And, and for us, that may seem ludicrous, especially in light of all that we have just read, But there are many who either will articulate that theology directly or will at least implicitly believe that in their relationship to God. 
One process theologian by the name of Charles Hartshorn said it this way. He said this, quote, I take true religion to mean serving God, by which I do not mean simply admiring or obeying Him or enabling Him to give benefits to me and to other non-divine creatures, but also, and most essentially, contributing value to God which you would otherwise lack. Even in this religious case, to serve is to confer benefit in precisely the sense that the served will, to some extent, depend upon the server for that benefit. This is genuine dependence, end quote. This is so blasphemous in light of what we just read from the biblical witness, yet this is what happens when men create gods in their own image. This particular theologian crafted an idol and sought the good wood that he thought would totter or rot, but it is nonetheless an idol. God did not create out of necessity. We read in Psalm 90 verse 2, for example, before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and to the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. There's a second answer that's given to this question, and it is this, that that God then created without purpose, seeking to reconcile the, the utter freedom and independence of God and the reality that there is such a thing as creation, some have gone the way of of a deistic kind of religion. And they have asserted that God really has no purpose in creating. It's as if God was simply bored. And, And so he threw some things together and he essentially wound up some laws and then he allows or or permits this creation to, to, to operate according to those laws, but God himself is distant, unconcerned, uncaring about the outcome. It's just there. The existence of things, therefore, outside of God is completely meaningless. Creation, then, is subjected to impersonal fate. The Creator has created the laws that will carry through creation, to its whatever end that may be, but he himself is wholly unconcerned. That, too, is is contrary to Scripture. So then what are we left with? Why did God create? Leads us to the only other option. That is this, God created out of the fullness of joy. God created out of the abundance of life. Didn't need anything. But he created out of joy and for joy. He created out of the fullness of joy that he has in himself, and he created for the joy of that which he created. He created out of abundance, not out of need. We see this reflected in a special phrase that is used with different words, but the concept is the same, both in the Old and the New Testament, that God does things for his own good pleasure. For his own good pleasure. For example, in that great 
chapter, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, where we have the, the story of redemption from eternity past to eternity future, involving all the, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, described in such beautiful language. And, and over and over, Paul mentions this phrase, actually two of them. He says, according to his good pleasure, to the praise of his glory, according to his good pleasure, to the praise of his glory. In other words, God created not out of some need that he had, but out of the abundance of his supply. He did so for his joy, his good pleasure. Philippians 2 verse 13 explains God's sanctifying work in us, that God is the cause of our sanctification, and he describes it this way. Why does God sanctify us? Here's the answer. It is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Understand this, God doesn't need your sanctification. He doesn't need your holiness to be more majestic. He doesn't need your pursuit of Christ's likeness, your conformity to his image to somehow be more glorious or to make his gospel better. He does those things. He conforms you to the image of Christ out of his joy, out of the fullness of his supply, out of his good pleasure. Or speaking of the incarnation of the Son of God taking on human form. Why did God do that? Was that needed? Paul says in Colossians 1 verse 19, it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Jesus. One who has written most about this is Jonathan Edwards. He has a great statement that helps us understand this. Jonathan Edwards in his dissertation on the end for which God created the world, put it in these terms. He said, quote, There is an infinite fullness of all possible good in God, a fullness of every perfection, of all excellency and beauty, and of infinite happiness. And as this fullness is capable of communication or emanation, add extra, that is, to the outside So it seems a thing amiable and valuable in itself that that goodness should be communicated. God communicates himself to the understanding of the creature in giving him the knowledge of his glory and to the will of the creature in giving him holiness consisting primarily in love for God and in giving the creature happiness chiefly consisting in joy in God. These are the sum of that emanation or communication of divine fullness called in Scripture the glory of God. God does this because He's full. Now as we step back then from all of this and consider the implications because theology is always practical. What kind of principles and implications do we draw from God's aseity? Let me leave you with five. Number one, stop living as if God needs you. 
Perhaps this is the most freeing thing that you're going to hear tonight. God does not need you. And yet it's so easy as Christians to develop that kind of lifestyle when we think, well, God needs me. He needs my worship. He needs my offerings. He needs my ministry. He needs my gifts and abilities. And we can think that way, and to some extent, it's, it's very burdening to think that way, to think of Almighty God needing me, and, and if you think too much on that, it'll destroy you. And if it doesn't destroy you, it'll certainly, it'll certainly elevate your pride. The, the idea that God needs something from you is the essence of all false religion. It's like the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18 who goes to God and, and prays. He knows he's got to give thanks to God for something, but he says, I thank you that I'm, I'm not like them. I give my tithes and offerings and so on and so forth. The idea that God needs something from us is the essence of, of false religion. And that means that nothing that you confess, nothing that you think, nothing that you pray, nothing that you feel toward God in any way is going to increase His majesty. just won't. It's not what He needs. He doesn't need that. In fact, this idea is so prevalent that often the gospel is even presented in these terms, that God is waiting. He needs you. So the gospel is presented as this invitation to supply what is lacking in God, or at the very least, there is some kind of a a, a, a symbiotic relationship there that, that God has something for you and you have something for God. You meet Him in the middle in the gospel, and you give to God what He needs, and and He gives to you what you need, and and everybody's going to live happily ever after. It's heresy. It's heresy. Ultimately, When we come to understand the aseity of God, we realize that 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 truth deals the fatal blow against our self-esteem, against our pride, our desire to be made much of. A gospel that says God needs you is very appealing to unbelievers, to sinners, because it makes them feel special. It makes them feel needed, and that's not the gospel. That's not the good news. And the aseity of God comes and destroys that pride, that desire that we have in our flesh to be made much of. Psalm 50 verses 10 to 12 says this, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine. And all it contains. Or again, remember that statement that Paul makes to those philosophers who believed that they were important. And he says in Acts 17, verses 24 to 25, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he does not dwell in temples. He's not served by human hands as though he needed anything. He doesn't. J.I. Packer describes the importance of aseity to the destruction of our, our pride in these terms. He says this, quote, In theology, 
Endless mistakes result from supposing that the conditions, bounds, and limits of our own finite existence apply to God. The doctrine of His aseity stands as a bulwark against such mistakes. If our life of faith, or in our life of faith, we easily impoverish ourselves by embracing an idea that God is too limited and small, and again, the doctrine of God's aseity stands as a bulwark to stop this from happening. It is vital for spiritual health to believe that God is great, and grasping the truth of His aseity is the first step on the road to doing this. Stop living as if God needs you. And that requires of you a whole re-examination of your life. Why are you part of this church? Why are you involved in ministry? Why are you here tonight? And if you think, I'm here tonight because God needs me, you're wrong. And, And nothing good will come of that. But if you're here because you acknowledge the fact that God doesn't need me, I need Him, changes everything. Secondly, remember that God owns everything. The aseity of God means that God is just in giving to whom He gives, what He gives, how He gives. He gives more to some than others. And He's perfectly just because it's all His. And yet we know this, it's our flesh we, we look at how, what God gives to others and, and, and think we deserve more of that and, 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 and sin and, and envy and jealousy. And envy and jealousy are, are sins committed against the aseity of God. God owns it all. And therefore, it is His right to give one this portion and another that portion. To give one more than, than another. It's His right because He, he, he owns it all. And it is his right to take it. It's his right to take what is his. We are mere stewards. Genesis 14, 19 says, God most high is the possessor of heaven and earth. He owns it. Deuteronomy 32, verse 39 says, See now that I am he, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal, and there is none who can deliver you from my hand. Job 1, 21 says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of of the Lord. Psalm 24, 1, the, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. It means everything that you have belongs to God. Your bank account, car, your possessions, your bed, the pillow you sleep on, the air you breathe, everything belongs to God. Number three, get in line with God's agenda. The aseity of God establishes His absolute worthiness of worship because He contains all life in Himself. 
In him we live and move and have our being. Or as Romans chapter 11 verse 36 says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Or Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Or that text from Revelation 4.11, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. It's interesting to note that often, as the biblical writers testify to the aseity of God, they are led to this conclusion, this because statement. He is worthy because of his aseity. And so our our great takeaway from this is that we need to, to get in line with God's agenda and live for his glory because he indeed is is worthy of that glory and that honor, that praise. For out of the fullness of his being, he created, and everything that he creates owes its very existence and sustenance to him. He is worthy. Number four, marvel at his concern for you. The great ancient of days knows your name. Marvel at his concern for you. The aseity of God intensifies the astounding nature of his love. We see that in the psalmist in Psalm 8 as he says, When I consider your heavens and I consider the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man? What is man that, that, that you take thought of him? The son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than God and you crown him with glory and majesty. This is what the aseity of God does, that when we think of this majestic being, and then we think, and he cares for me? He knows my name? It intensifies this, this marveling at, at, at God and his, his, his love for me. Psalm 144, verses 3 to 4. Again, The great question, O Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him? Or the son of man that you think of him? Man is is like a mere breath. His days are like a passing shadow. You know what? There isn't an answer that we can find to this question. What is man that you are mindful of him? We, We don't know how that can possibly be. And yet scripture testifies to it that the great I am knows us intensifies the astounding nature of that love and and elicits in us the the greatest praise. One theologian puts it this way, God relates to us, but by His choice, not because He is compelled by some need, that He does so relate to us is therefore an even greater cause for glorifying Him. He has acted and continues to act out of agape, unselfish love rather than need. 
And that's why we sang in that song, I'll praise to Him. I'll praise to Him who reigns in love, who guides the galaxies above, yet bends to hear our every prayer with sovereign power and tender care. And that leads to our final implication of this. God doesn't need us, but we need Him. Find your perfect supply for all of your needs in Him. We read that text out of Isaiah 40, that the weary and tired and those who stumble can find their strength in Him. Psalm 23 verse 1 is a great testimony to the aseity of God. The psalmist says, The Lord is my shepherd, therefore I shall not want. Or Philippians 4 verse 19, And my God shall supply all your needs, not out of His riches, but according to His riches in Christ Jesus We could look at 1 Peter 5, verse 7, cast all of your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. That's the the great invitation of of God's aseity is that even though He has no need, He exists in fullness and abundance, and He has invited us to receive our supply in Him One writer puts it this way, divine life necessitates God's all-sufficiency. This vital truth assures us that having an eternally, unchangeably, infinitely, blessedly, all-sufficient God frees us from any worry as to whether He can satisfy our needs. Indeed, He can because He remains perfectly satisfied in Himself. And Some of you tonight are very unsatisfied. Some of you here tonight have massive needs. Well, it is a joy to say because our God is self-sufficient, all-glorious, that He can be the supply for what you need. Find in Him that supply. If that's one of you tonight, as we close, come up to the front. We can pray with you. And we'd be glad to explain more of the supply you can find in this great God. Let's pray. Father, it is difficult to find words that would adequately respond to this great truth. You are the great I am who is unchanging from everlasting to everlasting, who possesses life in himself, is dependent on nothing, who is unchangeably majestic and blessed, and yet you know our names. And you have made the supply most evidently manifest in your Son, Jesus Christ, becomes that one who gives life to us. We thank you for that in his name. Amen.